chapter 8. We are continuing in the series on restoration of the church, subtitled The Church, Cruise Ship or Battleship. One of the little themes that we've kind of worked through as we've looked at this series is the idea that when you look back in the old family photo album and you look at pictures of the way we once were, more hair, less weight, and I'm not just talking about Al Hilton here, okay? Oh, like you wouldn't have said that if you were up here seeing Al in the front row of the balcony. It just kind of leaps out at you. Um, but you go back and you look, there's these, these old photos, and when you look at those photos and you kind of look at where you're at now, you get a sense of, wow, things, things have really changed a bit here. Well, today, we're going to look at a photo from the first century church that it'd be one of those photos that if you were looking back through the family album and you came across this one, it would have caught your attention. You would have pulled it out and you would have asked some questions about it to others. Because there would have been this, this, this hilarity going on in this picture. And the hilarity would have incorporated somebody like, I don't know, Uncle Fester or some, some uncle or relative that just wasn't known for particular laughing. And, you know, it just would have been like... You'd be going, what was going on here? You'd be asking that question. So when we look at this <clears throat> scripture passage here today, this would be one of those snapshots. It's a, it's a snapshot of the, what's known as the Macedonian churches. Uh, that's a, a little group of, of churches that are regionally clarified. Uh, Macedonia was a Roman province. If you were looking at a map, it'd be northern Greece, you know, up above the Mediterranean Sea, up through the Aegean Sea, right at the tip there. You'd have had a little group of churches there, uh, church in Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea would have been the primary big churches there at the top of this little curve in the Aegean Sea. And these churches, we kind of get introduced to these churches in about 51 A.D., when Paul is on a, a, a missionary journey into that part of the world. Remember, up until that, that point, Paul has not gone that far he receives a vision of a man in Macedonia saying, come over and minister to us. And, and in obedience to that vision, Paul changes course, jumps on a boat from Troas and heads up to that part of the world. And we get a little bit of a picture of what this place was like immediately. In Acts chapter 16, Acts chapter 17 is where you hear the story of what took place. Now, Paul lands, he goes into uh, to Philippi and begins to to minister there. He's not there very long when he gets chased down in the street by this slave girl who's a, uh, possessed. She's possessed, but she has this ability to do divination. And she's walking around behind Paul, crying out in a loud, distracting. This is not a supportive voice, so it sounds like it's a supportive statement. You know, these, these men are proclaiming to you the way of salvation and the Most High God. Well, <clears throat> you know, if she was doing Paul a favor, I don't think Paul would have been quite annoyed by her the way he was. So apparently there was some kind of mocking going on here. And, and Paul ends up casting the demon out of this girl. Well, that sends the city into an uproar. Uh, the, the guy who owned this slave girl who was using her demonic abilities as a source of divination and income. Well, that apparently that was a practice that was greatly appreciated in Philippi because he has the power to have Paul thrown in jail, not just in jail, and this is not waiting room jail. This is, he's locked, as it says, in the inner jail, in stockades. This guy is, is locked away. And in the midst of that, the Lord comes, remember the Philippian jailer gets, gets saved, etc. But there's this great uproar that takes place. Paul moves from Philippi to Thessalonica. When he gets to Thessalonica, begins to preach the gospel there. Moms of Jews begin to form against him. And in the midst of all this opposition that comes to Paul, he's kind of having to be skirted out of town at night so nobody sees. And he moves over to Berea. Well, when the Thessalonians hear he's in Berea, the mobs follow him to Berea. So this is a, it's a hostile environment, this Macedonian area here. And when we, when we look at this passage here, it's just an amazement to see what the grace of God has accomplished in this passage. Because when we read this passage here in 2 Corinthians 8... We're about five years later. 
Paul's gone, he's ministered, he's opened up the door to the gospel with a great deal of opposition and adversity resident in that area. And then five years later, we come to this passage and listen to what Paul is saying as he writes to the Corinthians, actually from Macedonia. Chapter 8, verse 1 of 2 Corinthians. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own free will, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Let's skip to verse 7. Encourages them. This is him speaking. He's reporting about the Macedonians. He begins to encourage the Corinthians. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, which I actually don't think that's a good translation. I think it should say, in your love for us. See that you excel in this act of grace also. Now, there's an interesting little set of words that are in this passage. I don't know if you pay attention to the construction here. There's a, there's a bunch of words that seem to flip-flop back and forth in terms of how they make sense or not. Severe test of affliction. Abundance of joy, extreme poverty, overflowing generosity. It sounds like a bunch of confusing words. It just highlights the fact that there must be, must be God on the scene here doing something in the midst of these people's lives that gives them characteristics and attitudes that they could not have had apart from his involvement with them. Now, what I want to touch on this morning is, is the area of giving the area of talking about our finances, the area of understanding how we feel about giving to the kingdom of God. And I believe the church is needing what I've titled today, a restoring of the joy and privilege of giving. When you look at this snapshot, this picture is of a, of a group that is, you know, if you can put it into a photograph, there is there's uproarious laughter and joy in this picture. But if you knew something about the Macedonians, you'd be scratching your head going, what is going on in this picture? Because what characterized their lives was anything but something that you'd be uproariously laughing about. So something's going on here that's great in this picture. Look in verse 1. Immediately lets us in on this clue. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. I think there's a little play on words here. Uh, at least it comes out in the English. I'm not really sure it's there in the Greek. But the, we want you to know about the grace of God that's been given. Okay, well, how do we apply that? We're talking here about the grace of God that's come to man. Kind of Titus 2, grace, the grace of God has appeared to all men, teaching men to say no to ungodliness and to live righteously and is that the grace that we're talking about here? The grace that comes to you and I, the grace that saves us, the message of God's goodness and mercy to redeem us from sin and selfishness? Or the grace of God has been given. Uh, this is a, in the context of this, this is about a group of churches that are giving financially. So is it the grace of God being given this way? That these churches in Macedonia are giving away the grace of God to others and is touching other people? Well, I think we're safe to say in the biblical context... Both. Because I don't think the grace of God can be given this way unless it has first been received this way. So a testimony about an overly generous group of churches first begins with a testimony about an overly generous God who has been gracious towards these very people. And, and when it comes to giving, uh, I know giving can be for some a sensitive subject. Uh, I'm not sure why exactly that is, and I really don't want to give too much even lip service to the fact that this is a big deal for some folks. Uh, when I walk through some of these texts today with you, you're going to see it's not a big deal for the Bible to talk about giving. Uh, you know, intentionally, I, I want you to have your giving statements today, intentionally. I want you to go home with them and look at them intentionally. Because the Bible highlights issues about giving. It's not soft on it at all. And somehow in our world today, perhaps because 
There's been public corruption that's been in the church world that's caused people to kind of wonder. Um, Let me just say this from the get-go as we look through some of these issues of giving. If there has been corruption in the church world concerning how finances have been handled, in some ways, that has got nothing to do with your giving. Because biblically, you give to God. I give to God. Now, should there be stewardship in the church? Should there be accountability in the church? Yes. But whether or not I give is not based on whether or not all the people in the pictures are in the right place and doing the right thing. Because if that were the case, ain't nobody given anywhere at all ever in the Bible. But when we hear about giving in the Bible, it's because God stands and says, I am the recipient of your giving. And, you know, God's means of giving is not for us to make paper airplanes and throw them towards heaven. You know, it's like, here's a dollar. God, this is to you. You know, we give to people. We give to the church. We, we give to ministry. That's how we give to God. That's always been the case all throughout Scripture. So the Bible's not soft on talking about this whole issue of, of giving. But giving for all of us starts with receiving the grace of God. The very motivation as to whether or not I'm going to ever be a giving person needs to start with, am I overwhelmed with what I have received? If I've received of this abundance, of His fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. When I am overwhelmed with the thought that I have in my life today resonant, the multifaceted elements of the grace of God that are all over my life. I mean, the most obvious grace of God is the divine forgiveness that I've received from my sins. Being forgiven. If I couldn't put my finger on anything else in my life, then I have a category big enough there to consume me with gratitude. I should be overwhelmingly amazed that I stand forgiven before God. But the reality is, when God forgives us, He doesn't just wipe the slate clean, turn His back on us, and then go about His business and say, look, I can barely stomach you people. I've forgiven you. Don't ask me for anything else. He begins to delight, as we said last week, He delights in these acts of kindness towards us. Forgiveness for God is just the beginning of Him intentionally being gracious to us over and over and over and over and over again in all kinds of ways. So I think it's accurate to say, you know, brothers, whether we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. First, that grace came from God. And in our lives today, the first thing that happened was God's grace came to us. Now, how can we really be sure... And you and I have received the grace of God. This is where, I don't know, we don't read enough of the Bible and spend enough time really thinking about it. Because when we think grace, we think grace is is like the opposite of works. You've got grace and you've got works. I mean, that's how I read my Bible. Um, No. No, no, no. No, works are all over the Bible. There's not an apology for works all over the Bible. The only times works gets stomped on is when someone tries to misplace it. And someone takes it and and sticks it into the equation of salvation as a means of getting God's approval. At that point, the sirens go off in the Bible. But up until that point, and apart from that point, the Bible's not anti-works. The Bible's all over works. The Bible loves works when they're in the right context. And grace is the context for works. You know, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. We don't ever read all the way to 10. And for by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, lest any man should boast. But we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Right, so when grace shows up, works is like the caboose following it. Now, we just need to make sure we got our, our, our train in order correctly. Right, cabooses never pull trains. So you you can never put works on the front end of the train as though it's going to get you to a place where God will now be gracious to you. No. But when you put works, you don't don't take works out of the equation, throw it away, stomp all over it. Works are bad, bad, stay away. No, No works. It's all grace, all grace. How can you be sure you've ever really received grace? By a life that's changed. Oh, that's a nice thing. What does a life that's changed look like? It looks like works. It looks like you do something, right? 
Like you love people, you pray, you, you're, you praise God, you, you reach out to the lost. I mean, all kinds of things. What is that? That's the grace of God being manifest. So I think there's a great picture here of grace received and grace given. That's how grace really, really is. When you and I have received grace, we give it away somehow. So the Macedonian churches have received grace from God and they are giving it away. And this is where I think sometimes we can learn something from this passage, but in many contexts, we have relegated grace to being that pixie dust thing talked about before. Grace comes straight from heaven in some sprinkled pixie dust fashion. The grace of God has come to me. Uh, Well, you know, that can happen. The Holy Spirit imparts things directly to us. But you do realize that there's much of the grace of God that comes this way. It comes into my life through other people. And if I don't realize that, then I am probably really weak on my worship and praise and appreciation of God's grace. Because I start thinking, well, if it doesn't come into my life mysteriously, you know, I can't even track down. I can't run a trace on this thing. It must have been the grace of God. If some person comes into my life and extends something to me, support, encouragement, financial help, Well, that wasn't the grace of God. That was so-and-so being nice to me. Wrong. Absolutely wrong. That is the grace of God. Coming through a real-life vehicle, which is how God delivers most of what He does. You know, the gifts of the Spirit, you know, the, the charismata, they are the grace of God. But they're resident in people. They're all an extension of the ministries of people into our lives, but they are the grace of God, aren't they? So in this context, we get a revelation that... We receive grace. When we give, we impart God's grace to others. So this is a great picture of, of how you and I are look at our finances. Every bit of finances in our life is the grace of God having come to us. Whether it came through your job. Whether it came through uh, some rebate from something you bought. Well, however it came, it's the grace of God that brings that into your life. Now, why is it in my life? Well, for a number of reasons, but one of them is for it to be dispensed into other people's lives. What a joy it is to know that you are dispensing the grace of God when you give. When you gave this morning, when the offering was taken this morning, Peter highlighted one of the offerings, uh, issues that, that your offering helps to accomplish. Helping hands. This is becoming a huge category. And, and you guys don't know some of the stories, and we're going to try and do a better job of publishing some of this stuff when Mercy Ministries is, is really up and running fully. But every week we sit down with a story of people's lives who are about to be evicted, about to have their light shut off, about to have their water shut off. And and, I'll tell you what, I don't know, I think Pete and I could write a book on stuff we've learned about how the city of New Orleans operates. Uh, If you pay this, you're all right. If you don't pay that, you don't have to pay that. Some people haven't paid parts of their bills. You know you could pay part of the bill, did you? You haven't paid parts of their bills in years. But if they don't pay this part, they're going to shut the water off. If they shut the water off, they're going to kick them out of the place. I mean, so there's all this stuff that you don't realize. You gave this morning, and you gave the church the ability to give the grace of God to somebody who's about to be on the street. But you gave that grace to that person. Now, I know you gave it to the church, and this is how the church is supposed to operate, and this is what you see here in this passage. You gave it to the church... And in fact, you're giving to the church in any way imparts the grace of God. Every person here this morning is receiving the grace of God, whether it's been through times of worship together, whether it's been through times of prayer that took place this morning, whether it's been through the delivery of this word. Your giving created the opportunity for this grace to go forth. If you don't give, there are no pastors who give their lives to lead the church, to listen for God. To, to get the word of God, to lead ministry teams, to prepare the church for direction. There, there isn't that. There, there isn't uh, a word that's being given this morning. There isn't preparation and prayer that went into times of worship. If you don't give, those things don't exist. But you give and the grace of God comes out of your life and into somebody else's lives. And again, you just need to know this, and I, I love Paul beginning this way. We want you to know, brothers... Uh, listen, I want you to know this morning, and I, I, this could be a message. I could have just done one line. I didn't want to do that. We could have done one line. We want you to know, brothers, 
about the grace of God because of your giving. See, you don't get a chance to hear week in and week out somebody whose life was affected by a message, by a time of ministry. You know, you don't, those cards don't come to you. Those emails don't come to you. It's not as though somebody would know to even how to do this. They don't know who gives and how much is given, etc. But it's not as though somebody would actually be able to send an email to you, thank you for the grace you gave to the church, for I received of it this way. Uh, Alpha. You know, we, we, we don't cover in offerings what Alpha costs us to do. Uh, but, you know, when you just support the church, that's what makes it happen. And How many of you guys are here this morning... Uh, and your, your introduction to Lake, you came through Alpha. Just see your hands real quick. Hold on up high. Okay. Um, boy, there are so many folks in second service is, is full of these guys. As a matter of fact, those of you guys who only do first service, there's another church that meets here. <laughs> I say that sort of laughing, but uh, you, know, you, you might want to sometimes attend that service intentionally for the purpose of connecting with those people. Many of you have been in Christ for many years. You've received the grace of God in ways that, that they could really benefit from getting to know you. Um, but there are a huge number of folks who've come to know Christ and have come into the kingdom of God through Alpha. Well, you give and the grace of God shows up in their lives. Uh, those children being cared for at Rancho 3M are an extension of the grace of God given from Lakeview Christian Center. Given financially from Lakeview Christian Center. Next generation ministry. Young people. Uh, who get saved in that ministry, get introduced to the gospel. All these things are the grace of God. You've received grace, you have given grace. And you've given grace in the form of finances. So all these things practically end up in people's lives because we're obedient to give. Look in verse 2. <coughs> now here's the interesting part. Here's Uncle Fester, if you will. Here's that part of the picture that, okay, this kind of doesn't make sense. Here's the setting for these guys. For in a severe test of affliction, a severe test of affliction, and the Greek words here are chosen carefully because there's a, there's a less intense way to say all this stuff. So this is, this is intentionally being done by Paul, highlighting something about the Macedonians. In a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Just consider these two elements. Here are people described by a severe test of affliction and extreme poverty. Not just poverty, extreme poverty. The Greek actually there means bottom of the barrel. They're just poor. These are the poor of the poor. Now, you and I can't even begin to use the word poor. You and I don't know what poor looks like. Uh, if, you've, if you've traveled to third world countries, you have an idea of what poor looks like. If you've never been to a third world country, don't ever use that word to describe something you've been around in this country. You don't know what poor is. And I don't know what poor is. I've never lived in it. I've never suffered through it. I've never tasted it. But I've, I've been around third world countries and have seen poverty and what people walk in in that. And when you put yourself in these guys' positions... You know, when you look, when you read the New Testament, it is third world Christianity. This is not the, you know, the second letter to the Chicagoans. These are the Corinthians. These are people who live in a third world setting. Now think about what that means for these guys financially. These guys don't know what it is to have a, a savings account. They don't know what an insurance company is. Insurance company? These guys lived in an earthquake zone. You know, when an earthquake came, they didn't, you know, send off a telly to the uh, State Farm agent. You know, our our house, oh, look at our house. We're going to have to call State Farm. FEMA will be here soon. You know, there's going to be relief. No such thing. These guys live in a third world setting. There is no help and assistance coming. If your house ends up rubbled into the ground, because that would be what would happen oftentimes in an earthquake. Bad luck. Too bad. Oh well. There's no thought in these people's lives about a pre-tax 401k plan. They have no IRAs. 
Saving for higher education? If you had any education, you, that, that would be something that could be said. Now, see, all these things are in our lives. And they crowd at us for the priority of where our finances need to go. And it, this is just the, the, the difficulty of living in a third world, the condition of extreme poverty. And these guys weren't just poor third world people. They were bottom of the barrel third world people. And they lived in an extreme amount, a severe affliction, I think it says. A severe test of affliction. This is first century Christianity. These are people, I can't, I'm going to go into all the details of this, but, but there was a great deal of persecution. If we visit Paul just for a moment, when he visited this region, it didn't take long to generate jail time and mobs. Paul was on the scene and immediately this was a hostile environment to be in. So now the Gospels come. I would imagine the environment is more hostile now in some ways than it was when Paul first got there. Because now people are entrenched against this thing called Christianity that's come into our region. And it's been here for five years, messing with our lives. And the hardness of people and their response to that. And people lost things. They were extremely ill-treated. Under Roman law, there was just a great deal of affliction that came upon believers. You know, one thing that we overlook, the word martyr. We, and clearly in our minds, martyr jumps out and means something. Somebody who loses their life for the sake of their belief. You know, that word didn't always mean that. When you read the book, uh, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, you will be, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you will be my witnesses. That word witnesses is martyr. You will be my martyrs. And, and it didn't mean when it was written, you're all going to die. That's not what it meant. It meant you're going to tell the story of the gospel. You're going to proclaim what God has done in your life. It grew to become you're going to tell the story and die. Because over time, that's what happened. So there was a severe affliction. But what's interesting is when we look, <coughs> excuse me, when we look at these guys' lives in those times, in that time span, look at what characterizes the way they lived and the way they gave an abundance of joy. They gave of their own free will. They were begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part. Now remember all that you know about these people just in this quick picture. And there's something that doesn't look right in this picture. These guys are hilariously giving. Please, no, no, let us. It's interesting that they had to beg Paul. I'm, I'm almost suspect as to whether Paul and other leaders overlooked them in terms of them being able to participate in the offering that he was collecting because of their extreme poverty. You guys are bottom of the barrel. We're not expecting you guys to do anything. If anything, we ought to be doing something for you. But they begged, no, Paul, please, please let us participate in this offering of their own free will. Not of some sense of great obligation, all you're supposed to give. Look at the amount of their giving. A wealth of generosity in verse 2. Verse 3 says, according to their means and beyond their means. How, how does somebody living in this condition give beyond their means? That you could even give at all. But yet, Paul says, they gave beyond their means to us. A wealth of generosity. Let me ask you this question. This is one we should, we should pursue as much discomfort as we need to. Does God think you're giving generously? When God looks at my giving... Does he consider me generously giving? Oh, and do know, God does look at our giving. Amen. He looks very carefully. I put a passage in your outline there. Mark chapter 12, verse 41. Speaking of Jesus, says, He sat down opposite the treasury and began observing how the people were putting money into the treasury. Just not that they were putting. How were they doing this? What was the motivation here? What was the heart behind the giving? And many rich people were putting in large sums. A poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which amount to a cent. Calling his disciples to him, 
He said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all the contributors to the treasury. For they all put in, put in out of their surplus. But she, out of her poverty, put in all she owned, all she had to live on. See, I, I think that's the kind of giving Paul was describing for the folks in Macedonia. Their wealth of generosity, I don't think it was because it was huge in quantity. I think it's because these guys actually surprised everybody with, wow, did you see that? We got more money from these guys than we did from these over here. I don't think it was that. I think they probably got less from them than from anybody else. Because these were bottom of the barrel, third world Christians. They just didn't have much to give away. But in God's eyes, the way they gave was a wealth of generosity. Because of the way they gave. Because of the passion that they had. Because of the ability to do something when they had no ability to do anything. Which is exactly what that little widow had. Here, this is all I have to live on. It wasn't as though she said, you know what? I can make it through the next month uh, and I've got this left over. So here, I will give that in the offering. That seems to be what most others were doing. When Jesus sees this woman giving, yeah, I don't know what this looked like. Can you imagine Jesus? He's just sitting, he's watching Watching people give, pondering their, their heart. Of course, Jesus knows people's heart. He's not like us. You know, he knows their heart. He's watching them give. And he watches this woman standing in line. Here she comes. She comes up and she gives. And it's as though the lady's calling his disciples. Come here. Come here. Excited. He saw something in her heart of giving that excited him. You know, and I, I thought as I read this passage, Lord, you get excited about me giving. Would you call anybody over? Come here. Come, I want you to see. Watch Keith give. Watch this. Isn't that great? Is there excitement in God when he watches you and I give? What we give? Because he does watch how we give. And there's a joy that it brings to his heart when it is a certain type of giving. That is characterized both by the Macedonians and by this woman. But look, look in verse 7 of 2 Corinthians 8. <clears throat> Paul is, I don't want to use the word prying at the Corinthians, but he is prying at the Corinthians. If you read this, there's, there's all kinds of stuff that's lifted out of context in these, these passages. These are rich passages. If you go back and read the whole section, chapter 8, chapter 9, um, you find in there the verses, you know, like, God loves a cheerful giver. And, you know, I've heard that abused and misused, etc. And it's so lifted out of context. It's almost as though, so if you're not cheerful, then don't give. Um, no, no. Paul starts off here, and, you know, I know the Holy Spirit's inspiring him, but, you know, if it weren't for that, I'd be really questioning Paul's motives and why you're telling this story to these Corinthians, Paul. Why are you bragging on the Macedonians to the Corinthians? Well, if you read the rest of the passage, it seems to become pretty clear. Paul's going to be coming to them soon. <laughs> and he's going to be taking an offering from them as well. And Paul's been talking about the Corinthians have pledged to do this, this, and this in the offering that we're taking. And so he says, you know what? I've been bragging about you guys to everyone. So... You know, it would be really embarrassing if I show up and you guys don't give what you said you'd give. Here's what I'm going to do. This is what this... I'm giving you two chapters here real quick. I'm going to send some men ahead of me. And they're going to come and they're going to remind you of what you said you would do. Because, you know what, I want to show up and I might have some of the Macedonians with me. You know, the bottom of the barrel people who have given incredibly. I would be extremely embarrassed personally, as well as for you, as well as for the grace of God, to have them show up in the way in which they give and watch you give something that would not be appropriate. So I'm going to send men ahead of you, and, and just as you've promised to do, so do in your heart, because God loves a cheerful giver. That's the context for that statement. It's not an open, you know, if you can get around to being cheerful, then get around to giving. That's not the context. Paul's prying at these guys. He's saying, I'm coming to you next. 
And let me provoke you. The bottom of the barrel people were overwhelmingly generous, full of joy and giving. Now, if Paul and the Corinthians would be you know, a much better off group of people. The Corinthians, where they were located, they were much wealthier individuals. <clears throat> the Corinthians uh, couldn't put a patch on any one of us by way of wealth. Even the Corinthians lived in a third world country. So if, if this were incorporating us, what would Paul be saying to the church in America as he talked about the bottom of the barrel, poor individuals in Macedonia, I'm coming to America next. Don't embarrass me, you guys who have so much. Because these guys who've got nothing are overwhelmingly generous. And they're knowing that you're rich. Make sure you blow their minds in your giving. That's what Paul's telling the Corinthians. And I think we could do well to hear it as well. Now, what's interesting in this passage, verse 7, as you, this is speaking to the Corinthians, as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in your love for us, see that you excel in this act of grace also. Now, it's interesting, this act of grace, because remember, the Corinthians are known as the charismatic church of the New Testament. They are a gifted bunch of individuals. Paul says you excel, and he opens 1 Corinthians with, you guys excel in knowledge. Uh, you, are, you are not lacking in any spiritual gift. This is a genuine compliment to the church in Corinth. And then he goes on and enumerates all these things about these giftings that they have operating in their midst, and he exhorts them to continue on in this. He's not, he's not criticizing that at all. He's genuinely saying, as a church, you guys excel in these areas. Remember 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Paul says, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. Well, Paul includes in them for here that you guys even have love. That your, your incredible love for us, your earnestness in all these things. You have giftings, you have love, See to it that you excel in this as well. Now, what needed to be said to the church then needs to be said to the church today. Because too much of the church world today is filled with people who, they're in church every week. They, are, they attend. They excel in many areas, yet they do not give the way they should. They're part of the church. People have been members in the church for years. But they don't give the way they should. They serve in the church. They sign up for things. They help out. They're involved. They're people who speak confidently. They're somebody who can teach a Bible class. Somebody who prays in public and prophesies. It's somebody who comes to you in a moment of need and offers you great counsel. And says, well, you know, I've been praying for you and I feel strongly impressed that the Lord is telling you this. Or you should do this. Or I believe this. Well, let me show you this passage. Great confidence. But don't give. In a way that looks like this. Be careful that you excel in this area as well. Don't, don't be okay with just excelling in other areas of Christianity. Well, I'm here all the time. Man, I help out. That's got to be worth something. It is. Absolutely. It's critical. That does not negate giving. Giving is a category that's unique in Scripture and critically important. Putting your outline there, when we realize the huge emphasis placed on finances in the New Testament, we realize it is no small thing if our giving is not what it should be. Randy Alcorn said, how could the Bible's author and editor justify devoting twice as many verses to money than to faith and prayer combined? And how could Jesus say more about money than about heaven and hell? The sheer enormity of Scripture's teaching on this subject screams for our attention. And the haunting and immensely important question is, why? Why does God take so much time and interest in money in our lives? Richard Halverson said, Jesus Christ said more about money than about any other single thing because when it comes to a man's real nature, money is of first importance. 
Money is an exact index to a man's true character. All through Scripture, there is an intimate correlation between the development of a man's character and how he handles his money. You know, for this reason, a church that does not address the issue of money the way the Bible addresses the issue of money does a huge disservice to helping the body of Christ grow correctly. Because this area in our lives touches our lives in a unique way. That when you stop and think about it, money touches everything you and I do. Everything we do is touched by money or our, our desire for money, our thoughts about where we are with money, whether we have enough, don't have enough. All these things are helping to formulate who you and I are going to be. So that the Bible serves us by bringing it to the attention right before us and setting it before our eyes. Now, let me walk through a couple of thoughts here. Under what does a lack of giving reveal about us? First, let me say it does not reveal that we are too poor. Too many people posture themselves in circumstances that don't even begin to touch the skirt of the Macedonian church. Well, you know, I've got, got bills and, you know, had a, a downturn in business and things have been a little bit slow. That, that doesn't begin to even equate to bottom-of-the-barrel poverty and severe affliction. No insurance companies, no savings. And it doesn't even begin to compare with that. Yet these folks gave with an abundance of joy and overly generous and begged of their own will to be involved in giving. And so none of us here can use the excuse, well, I'm just too poor to give. There is no such creature on the planet. Somebody tell me that, that, that widow who stood in line with the only money she had to live on and gave it was too poor to give. You can't get any worse than that. But yet she still gives. And it touches the heart of God in the way in which she gives. A couple of things that I want to just touch on kind of quickly here. What does a lack of giving reveal about us? First, we may have a dangerous preoccupation with the temporal. Turn to Matthew chapter 6. I say dangerous because it's just simply dangerous. And it's always a temptation to love the things of the world, to love comfort, to love how temporary things touch our lives, what they do for us, how they make us feel. It's always a danger for those things. And we are warned in Scripture. Matthew 6, verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Don't do it. Where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For, excuse me, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now this next thought is not a different thought. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Or you will not serve God and money. You just won't do it. And there's a warning here in this passage, and it has everything to do with the, the, the temporary elements of our lives, that we not begin to treasure them. When we begin to treasure these things and the stuff of earth, then we begin to invest in them. We begin to handle money based on those things. But the scripture admonishes us to handle our money based on laying up treasure in heaven. How can I take the grace of God that's come to me in the form of finances and lay up treasures in heaven? That's supposed to be the guiding principle as to what I do with my finances. And what's highlighted here is the danger element is it has to do with the lamp of the body. You begin to love certain things that money is so intricately associated with, then you begin to bring a darkness into how you see everything in your life. This is where I think it's critical to go back to that thought. Make sure you excel in this area. Well, but I'm doing this and I'm doing that and I'm doing this. Make sure you excel in this area. 
Because it's this area, that love of that thing, that will cause you not to serve the master correctly. This thing will touch you in a profound way. Psalm 62.10 Do not trust in oppression and do not vainly hope in robbery. If riches increase, do not set your heart upon them. Right? No matter what you and I have in our lives, we are not to set <coughs> our hearts on those things. Luke chapter 12. Then he said to them, Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. Just a great reminder. Some of us, this is where that darkening of the soul, that darkening of the lamp, we have begun to think what I have determines who I am. What station am I in life? What can I buy versus what somebody else can buy? How successful am I based on what? Usually based on money and what I can buy with my money. Determine how I feel. Well, listen, receive the good news of God. Even when you have an abundance of things, your life doesn't consist of them. And that's a warning to those who have an abundance of things. But it's also a statement of freedom to those who don't have an abundance of things. If you don't have an abundance of things, don't sweat it. Your life doesn't consist of that anyway. And so even if you had what you so long for, you would need to be reminded. Remember, even though you have that now, your life does not consist of that. Do not become dependent upon that. Do not set your hope on that. Because you cannot and you will not serve two masters. If that desire begins to master you, you will serve it to the neglect of serving the master. Look at this First Timothy chapter 6. The love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. So this is a warning. There is a great danger in, in letting there be in us a craving for temporal things that money can buy. Well, I've just watched this happen to people. And, and, you know, actually, the people who have stuff are almost more in jeopardy in a lot of ways in some of these verses. I've watched, I've watched men with a hunger for career success sacrifice their serving of God in order to achieve something. Well, what's ultimately that about? It's about position, power, and money. But I want to achieve something that will make me feel a certain way. Well, you, you need to pursue that in God. Pursue something in God that makes you feel a certain way. Well, pursue something that your money can get to get you to feel a certain way. That's everywhere in our society, though. And so we are well warned and need to be careful about how we see money and how it operates in our lives. Ecclesiastes 5, verse 10. <clears throat> he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income. This, too, is vanity. When good things increase, those who consume them increase. So what's the advantage to their owners except to look on? I think we should be wise stewards. I think we should make good financial plans and decisions. But it would be a wise thing for you to visit. Go back over the last few years of your life and look and see if this isn't exactly true. You used to have this much income. You were careful, worried, trying to get more, figuring out how to posture this, add to it, blah, blah, blah. Years later, you've accomplished that. And, and where are you? You're exactly where you were back then. Goods increased and those that consumed them. They increase right along with them. Now, I know that's true for me because I have six children. And they're consuming everything. They're like locusts. And they, they have flown in and they're eating the furniture. I mean, they're everywhere. <laughs> it's God's means of humbling us. <clears throat> but if you look, we get all worried about our finances. I don't know if I can give, you know. No, be assured. There's stuff consuming your finances now. And even if you get a raise and an increase and you get that ultimate job and get paid ultimately, there will be things then that will, in, that will consume it as well. So that's just the truth of God. So along the way, our giving should never be touched by those circumstances. I should always be a giver, always in my heart giving to God. Now let me clarify something here for giving purposes. Secondly, second thing that lack of giving may reveal about us is we may be ignorant of sinning against God. We may think that, well, this is, this is not a big, huge issue. I mean, I do a lot of other things. 
Um, no, there, this is a, a huge issue because it touches our lives so profoundly. Malachi, chapter 3, verse 6. <clears throat> For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse. For you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you. So that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. It's an interesting passage here. The first thing that's really interesting is how off guard these guys are. What do you mean return to you? Boy, we're doing all kinds of things. I don't understand. What do you mean return to you? You're robbing me. What? What do you mean? Robbing you? How are we robbing you? Listen, we can, we can find ourselves in these passages. And, and I don't know whether there's a little bit of uh, playing dumb here on these guys' parts or whether they really are surprised. And there could be both of that for us today. There could be some of us here that say, you know what, I've, I've never really understood how to give. And there could be some here saying, I've heard a lot of messages on giving, and I've never adjusted my giving as a result of any of them. And I didn't think it was that big a deal, really. Well, here, here's the voice of God saying, you're robbing me. Well, how have we robbed you? Well, if you study the, the way the Bible teaches on giving, and the Bible teaches this principle of a tithe. The word tithe is, means a tenth. So it, it's not this vague, general term. It's not the sense of, well, you know, I, I gave $10 in a tithe. No, that doesn't make sense. A tithe is 10% of something. So if all you made was $100 this week, well then, $10 was a tithe. But ain't nobody in this building who made $100 this week. So if that's how we're giving, then we actually are robbing God. Because the Bible says this about the tithe. He says, the tithe belongs to me, the Lord says. So it's not as though it's ours to give to him. It belongs to him. You got God's money in your pocket. It belongs to me. Well, you know, I really feel led to give. No, this is not a feeling led issue. <laughs> you got my money. <laughs> This is a give it back to me issue. I'm not borrowing it. I'm not looking for you to feel especially moved. It's mine. Give it to me. If you don't give it to me, you're a thief. Because you've got in your pocket what's not yours. And you're treating it like it's yours. And I didn't give it to you that way. I give it to you to give back to me. That's mine. And so the Bible treats it as robbery when we don't give back to the Lord. It's interesting to say the full tithe. Bring the full tithe in. See, this is, this is an interesting thing that God has done by throwing a percentage il, il, uh, element into our finances. It doesn't leave me any room for this sense of, well, you know, I just kind of... I mean, I give. I don't know what... I give. Bring the full tithe in. So apparently there were some folks bringing something in. Just being like, you know, I'm... I'm bringing some stuff. Ah, what's what you all said about bring the full tithe in? You still got more in your pocket there, don't you? It's mine. Every last penny of it is mine. Now, this is this is the grace of God. We were a few years ago studying this out carefully and seeing God's grace all over it. 
You want to see the grace of God, really see the grace of God, sit down with the Bible and read all that it says about finances. Read the abundance of warnings. I just went through a few of them with you, very few of them. Read all that the Bible warns us about money and then appreciate that God put in our lives a means of protecting us from it by the tithe. The tithe is a gift to us. You think that the tithe is God's way of financing some big governmental thing going on in heaven? You think God can't throw a New Year's Eve party because, you know, we're holding back on the taxes? God doesn't need our money in that sense at all. But you and I need to give it to Him. We need to give it to God. So rather than create this easily corrupted, listen, I'm God, you know, I own everything, you guys should give to me, it's just a matter of principle, you're kind of renting space, the air you're breathing, the land you live on, it's all mine, all of it mine. You pay your, you pay your landlords to live in your space, right? You pay taxes to live in your country. I own everything. Make sure you pay me. So I just want to make sure you establish this idea. You should give to me. I'm God. You're the little people. I'm the big man. You should give to me. You know how easily corrupted that is? Okay, God. Here's my penny. And with joy, Lord, I give to you. And the Lord knew that would not be significant in our hearts. So God established in the heart of man that he would give a tenth to God. And it's, it's not a number that's floating. You know, when your paychecks comes, there's a tenth. Right? Everybody can do math, right? You can do math. You can figure out what your tithe is. If when you get your contribution statement today, it's not a tenth, you need to go back and read this verse very carefully. Because I believe it applies to whatever the distance is between what a tenth is and what you did give. Is that robbing God? I, I believe it is. Are you being sufficiently protected from your own life and your own elements of, of how you have money in your life? I don't believe you are. One great blessing that tithe provides is if you're given here and the tithe amount is here, everything you bought with this shouldn't be yours. God didn't provide for it. You took that money and bought something else with it? That wasn't God. You should never have had that money. You invested in this, you bought that thing, you got that new toy, you're going off on this trip. That money should never have been in your pocket. You sure you should be doing that? You sure you ought to own that thing? So you violate one principle, but then you want to be in the will of God. See, it just kind of, it kind of crosses over here and it creates a problem. So God's protecting our life with this issue. Proverbs 3.9, honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of your crops. Randy Alcorn says the tithe or first fruits was recognized as belonging to God in the first place. Hence, one was not giving a tithe, but simply repaying it to the one whom it belonged all along. No one said, I feel led to tithe, or I think I'll give my first fruits this month. No one asked, would you like me to tithe, Lord? The answer had already been given in God's word. He goes on, says, tithing gives us perspective. This is a gracious gift. It reminds us that all we are and all we have is from another, a higher one. Through the tithe, God built into the rhythm of life the unceasing reminder that he owned the land, the cattle, the jewels, the money, everything. God owns everything. And when you and I receive from the God who owns everything, the tithe is a, it's a, knee-jerk response that God has created that we would always look back to Him. And listen, and I can't get to the rest of these notes, so I do encourage you to read through them, visit with God over them, look at the Scriptures, and consider. Because one of the things that the tithe does is it postures me to trust God. And what a great place that is. When I... Return to the Lord out of response to Him blessing me. I am making my mind conscious of the fact that what I have came from Him. All my needs are met through Him. What I will need in the future comes from Him. It will show up. 
See, when I get my mind off God being my provider and get my mind on money and what do I have and I don't have and I'm short this month and I don't have that, I couldn't possibly give and get that out of my head because I couldn't do it anyway. And I'm just this, this, this thing, can't pay that thing, I'm going to have to work extra hours. I get my mind on that, all I have is anxiety and fear in my life. I've brought that. When I look to God and I realize, Lord, everything comes from you. And the reason I know that is because the second anything enters into my life, I take 10% of it and I give it back to you immediately. First fruits. First fruits. The principle of first fruits was the first that came in went to God. if, If you don't capture this, you probably will never get to a tithe. And you're giving. Now, let me say this. There are many in this church who give way beyond a tithe, which would be, I think, what the Macedonians were participating in. They were giving beyond. This wasn't them scraping together a tithe. This was them giving beyond that. But if you don't start with first fruits, and if you think this way in your life, let me, let me challenge you, severely challenge you. That widow gave out of her living expenses. can't afford to tithe. I, I, you know, I've got bills. I, I, mean, I mean, it costs me so much to live. And uh, First fruits means before I live, I give. Before. Well, I've got debt. I mean, I've got to pay debt. What kind of witness would that be? A better one than not paying God. Well, it might take me longer to pay off my debt. Yes, it will. Or God may miraculously pay off your debt when you honor Him. I mean, in this wonderful passage in, in Malachi, test me and see. Come bring it in and see if I won't open the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing on you so much that the need is completely met. And look at the varieties of ways that God will do that. I lost my passage here. Where am I? I will rebuke the devourer so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil. Your vine in the field shall not fail, so fail to bear. The nations will call you blessed. See, I mean, you talk to anybody who's lived under the principles of giving to God God's way, and you'll talk to people who find avenues of blessing that come into their life. It's it's not always, well, you know, I started giving to God and my salary doubled. Well, you know, maybe for some that happens. That could be God doing that. For some, you just start breaking out in health. Then you haven't been to the doctor in forever. You haven't had to pay a doctor bill in forever. You haven't had a car repair forever. you got relatives who give you furniture and stuff and hand-me-down clothes. and uh, Somebody who just comes along and helps you out with something in your life that would have cost you quite a bit to do. All that stuff is God saying, watch me meet the need in your life. Watch me. Test me and see. Take me up on it. I said you give 10% and I will take care of your needs. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things will be added to you. See, please go through the outline because <clears throat> I'm out of time. But... If you go through and look here, you're going to find out that when I don't give, it highlights an issue of distrust. I don't trust God. But you don't understand. No, 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 I do understand. I understand that you don't know how you'd make it if you took 10% of your money and gave it to God. You don't know how you'd make it. Well, I don't know how you make it either. I don't know how I make it. But I do. It's a whole lot harder to back into this thing. Right? You're giving 2% to God and you're trying to figure out, man, how am I going to squeeze 8% in? <clears throat> you start doing it and you watch God. This is the challenge of God. God says, test me in this. Come on. Give it to me and see if I won't meet your need. I won't open the windows of heaven and make sure your needs are met. See, the tithe is a blessing. It's a principle God has used to bless our lives, to turn our attention and trusting Him. Lord, I don't know how you're going to do this. But guess what? How many of you guys are already looking over your month saying, I don't know how this is going to happen, but you don't have God in it. You're just freaking out trying to figure out, "Ah, I don't know how we're going to do this. I'm going into more and more debt. Credit cards are running up. and then I don't know how I'm going to get through this. But you don't have a big sense of God. You're with me. And the reason why you don't is because you don't give. You start giving to God. You'll start relieving this verse and saying, you know what, Lord? You said give to you first. I've given. I don't know how to get to the end of the month now, but I know you're with me. I know you promised me you will meet my needs. And give God the opportunity to do that. Let's stand up together.
Guess it goes without saying. <clears throat> you look at your contribution statement and you look at these scriptures and you sit down and you ask the Lord, you and God, for what do you think of my giving? And let God weigh your life and consider the points that are in this outline and stop and think, okay, Lord, I want to be honest with you. Why am I giving the way I am? What is my lack of giving, if you are in that category? What is my lack of giving revealing about my relationship with you? About how I look to you? About how I regard your word? And invite the Holy Spirit to lead you in this issue. So that you can enter into the very joy that God had intended for giving to be. So that you and I are like the Macedonians. I want to look like that picture. I want to look like a bunch of people with ear-to-ear grins, smiles on our faces, an abundance of joy, overwhelming generosity, and having somebody go, I don't understand. You are bottom of the barrel poor. And in the affliction that you're going through, and you're given like that. That's what I want to look like. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you that you touch the issues and areas of our lives that matter. This is significant, Lord. It affects us. We, we probably spent the weekend looking for sale items because we wanted to make sure we used our money in the most beneficial way we could possibly think of. Lord, there is no greater benefit in our lives than to give to you. And if we really believed that, we would stand next to the Macedonians with a smile on our face, eager to give, begging for the privilege to give, full of joy and anticipation that as, Lord, we give to You, You will outdo us. You will pour out through the windows of heaven an abundance of blessing that our needs will never go unmet. And abundantly beyond that, Lord, You will provide for us, for You are a God of great reward. No one ever obeys you or honors you without a reward. It is always rewarded. Lord, convince us that that is the truth in this category. You will reward us as we give to you. So let us, Lord, let this church, let a snapshot of this church provoke someone like it provoked Paul about the Macedonians. Brothers, have you heard of the grace of God given at Lakeview Christian Center. Lord, let it be said of us as it was of them. For your name's sake, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, School of the Word.